Barry Average made a documentary in 2011 about Harvey Weinstein, name that's been in the news lately, that was called Unauthorized, the Harvey Weinstein Project. He's followed that one up with The Reckoning, Hollywood's worst kept secret. It's available on VOD this week. It will play on the CBC on November 20th. You'll have lots of chances to see this. I want to talk to Barry, though, about the making of this film and and Harvey Weinstein and Me Too. There's a lot to unpack here, so we've got some time. So I've read in the Globe and Mail, Barry, first of all, welcome. Thank you. Nice Richard. to see you. I'm always You're happy a familiar to be here. voice to the to people who listen to this. Happy show. to be in the best studio in town. <laughs> so you walked away, according to the Globe and Mail, from the unauthorized, the Harvey Weinstein project, quote, a little haunted by what this film didn't say about the infamous movie mogul, who now we know a, a great deal about. Tell me about that, the feeling that you had after the film was wrapped. Well, the first film, Unauthorized, uh, did leave questions on the table only because everyone I interviewed said, you know, everyone, uh, this is great, but are you are you covering that other stuff? And I'd say, well, what other stuff? And they go, well, you know, the women. And I go, well, what do you mean? And they go, well, turn your cameras off. Mm-hmm. You know, so nobody would go on the record. I mean, you know, a Hollywood mogul with an infamous reputation about women is nothing new in the hundred years of cinema as we know it. Uh, More and more stories coming out. Uh, However, uh, there seemed to be something darker about those stories. So people would allude to things but never really get to it because Harvey, although power was starting to uh, uh, wane, he was still the man, Mm -hmm. the only guy to go and see. I I remember uh, interviewing James Ivory the great Merchant Ivory films, and and James, who canceled along the way three times on the way to see me, said, look, I didn't want to make films with him anymore, but where else was I going to go to get my kind of art film funded? So, you know, he would hold his nose and go in to have meetings with Harvey to get films financed, and, you know, at one point, Harvey threw a briefcase at him. He ducked and shattered a glass window in an office behind James, the great James Ivory. So, uh, you know, people felt that they had to sort of do business with him, but they knew there was this... Machiavellian side to him. Well, it's interesting because he did fund the kind of movies that right now really aren't being made. I mean, he left a vacuum in a way uh, because films by people like James Ivory, Martin Scorsese to an extent. I mean, you know, the Gangs of New York would not have existed without Harvey Weinstein. And you talk at at some point about interviewing uh, Scorsese and it was kind of like he was on autopilot or something during, again, Afraid to really speak about Harvey Weinstein. Well, even I, when, when, when I interviewed Martin Scorsese, it wasn't even about the, uh, this, the women because I didn't know anything at that mm-hmm. point. But even getting to his temper and the, fa- the battles they had on gangs in New York, every time Martin would start to go there, it would almost be like this, this computerized chip in his brain would kick in. There would be a little twitch. And then he'd go back on to script. He'd say, you know, he'd say, oh, there's, you know, Barry, there's something, something very Cecil B. DeMille about him. <laughs> well, okay, you know, uh, but, you know, he would never really get there. Uh, and so, you know, I make the film, it comes out, and I always felt I'd left something on the table. Fast forward five or six years in explosion, and that's where I felt that I couldn't leave the only film on record out there as, as this man, as the reinventor of indie cinema, and not talk about this, you know, uh, seismic change in, in, in Hollywood and the world. Yeah, the flip side of his personality. And so I guess what the the stories about James Ivory and, and Scorsese paint is a portrait of a guy who 
had so much power that even these legends, you know, Scorsese's name will be remembered long after Harvey Weinstein's name. Well, it might be different now, but he'll be remembered for different reasons, uh, you know, was sort of in the dust. Uh, but Scorsese was shy about talking about uh, Weinstein in any real way because of the amount of power that he wielded. Well, you know, if you need 40 to or $100 million to make a film, mm-hmm. Harvey was an instant green light if the cast is there. Right. Somehow he'd fund that. And so that it was the issue of who are you going to go? So you just looked the other way, which everybody did in Hollywood, which is, you know, why we call it subtitled The Worst Kept Secret because mm-hmm. everyone knew, but he's the guy. You just hoped it wouldn't happen to you. And when and we'll we'll talk about the reckoning in a second. I just want to make sure that people are up to speed or we paint the picture for everybody. So when you made that film in 2011, uh, Harvey wasn't completely thrilled with you at the moment, but he did. He like didn't he throw a party or something? Wasn't there a way of sort of launching a charm offensive or something against you? Well, I mean, I was warned when I was making that film that there'd be three phases to him. You know, the first phase would be he'd be extraordinarily charming and try and talk you out of it. Mm -hmm. You know, the second phase would be that, you know, he would try to buy the film from you and offer you other things not to make it. And then the third phase would be that he'd swing a bat at your head. And so I went through all those phases with him. The throwing the party was a little different. A year ago, uh, I wrote a book uh, called Moguls, Monsters, and Mad Men. And there were, you know, there were chapters in the book on Harvey, dedicated Mm -hmm. to Harvey and working with him. Uh, And he honestly felt, you know, the art of war, chapter right of the art of war, keep your enemies close, know your enemies well. And he said, look, you're you're launching your book. I'd love to throw a party for you in in New York. Lots of celebrities. And and I went to bed thinking about it and I went, all right, what's the downside? The book's coming out. Mm -hmm. Harvey wants to throw a party. He's going to pay for it. (laughs) <laughs> Gramercy Hotel, public relations, celebrities, yeah, yeah. you know, and this was his weird way of, you know, trying to ensure that I, I didn't go to the dark side too yeah. much on that. And and what prompted that was very interesting. A Hollywood Reporter did a can cover issue uh, on on Harvey and, 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 and a chapter in the book, a specific salacious story about Harvey producing right. Factory Girl. And, and he got a little nervous about what else might I have. And so he's, let's throw a party. I said, I'll go ahead and throw the party, but I know you won't show up. And he goes, no, I'll show up. I said, oh, you have to guarantee me you'll show up. And he did. He threw a great party with, you know, with, co-hosted with him, Dick Cavett, uh, and Michael Cole, the Rolling Stones promoter, yeah, yeah. sort of threw this party. <laughs> it was a little bizarre. Well, and, and Weinstein at that point, though, must have known that the, the, the gates were closing, that people were getting oh, close yeah. to this story because you've heard stories. I mean, there's so much of this that, that I don't know what to believe and what not to believe, but that he had hired like ex-Mossad agents yeah. to, to yeah. you know, destabilize Rose McGowan and, and befriend her and sort of find out what she knew, all that kind of stuff. So he must have known. So the idea that there's a book coming out that he's in, I'm sure that he was trying to figure out What's in it? Is this going to blow the lid off this? What's happening? I've never met a better master juggler. I mean, you know, juggling film projects, juggling offense strategies and and, and the media and other stories that were coming out. I'm convinced he was well aware of everything the New York Times and New Yorker had planned and done. He had moles everywhere, including page six of the New York Post. Every step he was ahead knew something was coming out and he'd either buy his way through it offer you films, do whatever he had to do, and and carried that on for three decades. I'm speaking with Barry Averidge. His new film, The Reckoning, Hollywood's Worst Kept Secret, it's a look at Me Too, 
It's a look at Harvey Weinstein. You can find it on VOD everywhere. So wherever you stream, legally stream movies, you can find it as of November 6th. So this new film then, so five years passes and Harvey's world is turned upside down. Um, or five or six years, probably. Uh, and, and all of a sudden, he goes from being one of the most powerful people in Hollywood and show business to being a complete pariah. And it happened overnight. It happened, uh, you know, with the publishing of an article by, by Ronan Farrow. Uh, it's amazing to me how quickly it happened. I mean, I guess people knew the rumblings of the story. And when it was finally in print, there was a, a sense of relief from people saying, man, I can finally talk about this. It was a, an incredible moment. We're coming up to uh, about a year mm -hmm. uh, since that first hit. I mean, people like to say that it's no surprise that this happened at a time when Harvey's power was diminishing. And mm -hmm. I don't buy that. I mean, you know, the wonderful thing about Hollywood is that you're, you know, you're down one moment and then you got the king's speech yeah, yeah. or Inglorious Bastards and then you're the king again. Yeah. So I don't think that it had anything to do with that. I think that, you know, it was the New York Times that broke the first story uh, and then, you know, Ronan Farrow's story came out just a little after and was a little bit more expansive on Me Too uh, and, and everything changed. I think there's strength in numbers. Mm -hmm. uh, nobody could particularly understand the genie out of the bottle and on how everything just became the perfect storm. But it worked. It worked and suddenly everybody – I mean it took a lot of celebrity to do it. I mean yeah. what's, what's unusual and, and, and I think distinctive in my film is that I didn't go after the famous people to speak. I wanted to find some unheard of actors and actresses that had stories that you would never hear including Dylan Farrow, yep. Woody Allen's uh, stepdaughter on that end of it. And it's not, that's not a Harvey Weinstein story, mm -hmm. but the film is a little bit more than just Harvey. So it's about the movements. Oh, I, I wanted voices that you didn't necessarily see and hear. Were you surprised at how quickly uh, the tide turned for him? The rumblings were out there. The stories come. Now, a celebrity, uh, everyone, I mean, you know, not just Rose McGowan and Ozzy Argento, but Gwyneth Paltrow, and it goes on and on and on. Very, very famous women uh, were coming out and saying, he did these terrible things to me and or, you know, he stymied my career. Mira Sorvino saying, like, you know, he didn't like me, so I didn't work. Uh, so all those voices are added to this. But were you surprised at how quickly everything turned around for him? I mean, it was over in two days for him. It really was. I, it, it was this uh, uh, waterfall. Mm -hmm. and, and again, it took celebrity to do it. Yep. Gwyneth Paltrow, Ashley Judd, Salma Hayek, you know, one worse story after another, and it just piled on. And, you know, the world of social media, Me Too went from five people to 500 mm -hmm. in minutes. Uh, and then that was the end. I, I was surprised at how quickly other names uh, uh, fell. Uh, other major celebrities yeah. fell. And we cover that in the film. And, you know, it was, it, suddenly it was every week, uh, every two days, you know, another story, major names, Charlie Rose, Matt Lauer, Kevin Spacey. It was a cleansing uh, in Hollywood and media like we'd never seen. When we come back, we continue the conversation with Barry Average. His film is called The Reckoning, Hollywood's Worst Kept Secrets. Uh, it is uh, not a follow-up of sorts, but a continuation, I suppose, of a film uh, made in 2011 called Harvey Weinstein Unauthorized. And, you know... What I want to get to when we come back uh, are the, is the nitty-gritty of making The Reckoning because it doesn't just cover Harvey Weinstein. That's right. The, the scope is a little broader. Stay with us. More with Barry Average when we come back.
Barry Averich is my guest. He has a film called The Reckoning, Hollywood's Worst Kept Secret. You can see it on VOD, so iTunes, whatever streaming service you use, legal streaming service that you use, you can see it as of November 6th. Uh, Wait for it on the CBC on November 20th. Uh, And this is a look not only at the career of Harvey Weinstein and his interaction with Me Too, hashtag Me Too, uh, but the the effect of Me Too on the industry in general. So uh, let's talk a little bit more then about, it, it starts, I guess, with Harvey. The idea starts with Harvey Weinstein. And then you said, okay, well, let's, let's, let's broaden this out. Let's, let's have a look at what else is happening. Right. I mean, we, we open the film in an O.J. Simpson kind of way where you know, Harvey lands on a private plane in Arizona and, and we follow his Bronco, per se, on the highway as he goes to uh, sex addiction therapy yes. at some private clinic in Arizona. Uh, and then the film definitely widens out to s- capture a moment in the media mm-hmm. that that we'd never seen before in, in the history of show business or the world for that matter. And so it does widen out to, to explain and understand the phenomenon of Kevin Spacey, of Louis C.K., uh, all of these guys uh, who you know who fell underst- understand how uh, Hollywood didn't want to kill the golden goose mm-hmm. in so many different ways, and yet I think Richard, what's interesting, unlike other industries where this certainly is rampant uh, in in the finance industry and in law firms everywhere, restaurant uh, industry, restaurant in- unbelievable. Stories. We interviewed. Uh, 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 agricultural workers, mm-hmm. uh, women in California that, that pick grapes and avocados that are sexually abused on a daily basis on that end. How much can you put into the film? But rampant. But nobody said anything for all these years. It took Hollywood, mm-hmm. this industry, to say, all right, we better look at ourselves. And why? Because it's the only industry in the world where, where if, the, if the consumer says, hmm, mm-hmm. we have a problem, then box office gross can change overnight. Yeah. So Hollywood said, okay, we have a problem here. Will there be change? That's another segment. But but we widen the film out, start with Harvey, and then look at all the players and, understood, and understand exactly how it works, why people did what they did, why they look the other way. Uh, we discussed the non-disclosure agreement. Mm-hmm. Gloria Allred's made millions and millions doing deals to hush people up. And well, but the non-disclosure agreements, from what I understand, don't really mean that much, ultimately, in the wake of a scandal. Well, I mean, you know, they are, it's a legal document. Yeah. Uh, I think a lot of the people that signed them basically said, okay, uh, you know, all gloves are off here, all bets are off. This has now become public, so I'm just right. going to break it, hoping that, they you know, don't the, get sued. The, the, yeah. Yeah, the alleged uh, uh, predator doesn't sue. And so, you know, uh, uh, certainly a famous one with, with Harvey and his uh, assistant and, mm-hmm. uh, and another employee who was allegedly raped in, in the Venice Film Festival had signed a $800,000 deal, they, and they came forward uh, on that end of it. So, But the, the NDA is something that should be outlawed because you're buying you know, silence, yeah. and then they go on, as, it, as Harvey did for, you know, settled uh, millions of dollars. You know, and a, a, a quick story, when I did the first film, Unauthorized, uh, a journalist from New Yorker magazine had said to me that, you know, he had when he was interviewing Harvey for a piece called Beauty and the Beast, he said to Harvey, you know, can we talk about these women you have all of these uh, settlements with for, you know, all kinds of issues? Uh, and, and he said, well, I don't know what you're talking about. And he said, well, look, you know, I, I, I need you to show me the canceled checks to confirm that Disney didn't, who's the owner of Miramax, didn't pay off these women and you paid them off. And, and Harvey was forced, showed up in a hotel and showed him the canceled checks 
And there were quite a few. And how does a board of directors not look at that and say, you know, Harvey, uh, that's that should be your own personal money. That's not our problem. Well, Disney has since come out and said they didn't know. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the, the, the board of directors of the Weinstein Company said we didn't know. So if you look at both of those and isolate them, the Weinstein Company board of directors certainly knew. Mm-hmm. You know you know what you're out. It's Hollywood. They say, oh, you know, Harvey, skirt chaser. And the skirt chasing is one thing. You know, you're a flirt. You're this, yep. you're that. You're an adulterer. Uh, but, you know uh, – uh, Aggressive sexual behavior is another story, certainly against anybody's will. Uh, and uh, the Weinstein Company board directors certainly knew. Disney knew. You know, there were provisions in his contract that that basically said, you know what, you have to handle your, handle your own settlements. We're not going to handle them. So if you've got something in someone's contract that says you handle your own settlements, I think you know the MO going in. And I would guess now that uh, the change in Hollywood is that with any hint of any of that, just it, it, the person just wouldn't simply wouldn't be hired. Well, pretty much. And, and you know, films have been shut down. Series have been shut down on that end of it. I, you know, people go, well, are things going to really change? There is change. There's no question. We're all conscious of how we're acting in the workplace because we know a, a career could be uh, eviscerated. Your entire life can evaporate. Within seconds, that's the double-edged sword of this, the 50 shades of gray of what's really bad and, and, and no one has sort of figured that out. But a change in the workplace is happening. I wrote about this for Hollywood Reporter when John Lasseter from Pixar, after his uh, uh, allegations of sexual uh, misconduct uh, happened, he was then being welcomed back to work at Pixar. And I wrote this piece saying, too, you know, so, is it too soon mm-hmm. for him to go back and into the workplace? And they ultimately fired him. Yeah, I'm speaking with Barry Average. His new film is called The Reckoning, Hollywood's Worst Kept Secret on VOD November 6th. Uh, And they did. They they got rid of Lasseter. And that must have been an extraordinary decision to make because without him, I think – I mean you've got extremely talented people working there. But he was kind of a once in a lifetime. Create a force. Yeah. And people love working with him. And you know what, Richard? My theory on this is that if – and it doesn't dismiss or excuse – any horrible behavior in the workplace. However, if you're the lovable guy that's the flirt or that maybe says the wrong thing here and there and there's something inappropriate, people tend to forgive a little at the workplace. If you're an AH, yeah, yeah, <laughs> if yeah. you're a really bad guy, then they're happy to see uh, Caesar fall. Right. And I think in, in, the, in the, you know, the situation of Matt Lauer and the situation of Harvey Weinstein – Kevin Spacey, and on and on where, they, where people really felt you were such a bad guy to them behaviorally, not sexually misbehavior, mm-hmm. but just, just a real bad guy. People are in a rush to put those knives in your back and you go. There's nobody that, that came out and defended Harvey. Nobody came out and defended, you know, Kevin Spacey. I mean, Judy Dench did an interview mm-hmm. two days Probably, ago where yeah. she, she said, you know, I, don't, I think it's wrong to – you know, to to erase somebody's career and, and try to, you know, she had an issue with and all the money in the world about taking out his part and, yeah. and, and putting in Christopher Plummer in that. Uh, and, but it's a tough question. When we come back, we continue the conversation with Barry Average. The film is called The Reckoning, Hollywood's Worst Kept Secret. You can see it everywhere on VOD starting on November 6th. Stay with us. Barry Average is the director of The Reckoning, Hollywood's Worst Kept Secret. We've been talking about Harvey Weinstein. We've been talking about hashtag Me Too, Kevin Spacey, a lot of the names that you're familiar with. The movie, though, doesn't just deal with 
very famous people. Harvey is a main player in here, but I liked how the film uh, digs a little deeper to find people who were affected uh, but weren't A-list stars, who weren't above the title stars. And I think the idea behind that, or what I took away from it, was the idea that uh, this filters down to a lot of people. Harvey destroyed a lot of careers that didn't have a chance to get going. There are films, great performances that sit on a shelf that will never be seen, and certainly that happened with the the downfall of of the Weinstein Company. I almost had a film that was stuck in in its litigation and, and whatnot. I was able to get it out, but... It, 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 Harvey's M.O. with uh, with women was that he had a lot of, of uh, uh, alleged assailants or, or not alleged assailants but alleged victims mm-hmm. going at the same time. So he would meet you and say, hey, pleasure to meet you. Keep in touch. That's, you know, segment one. Yeah, segment yeah. two was, hey, I'm going to send you a script. Love you to read it. And then you wouldn't hear from him for months. Then a couple of months later, uh, I'm going to be in Toronto Let's meet at the Four Seasons and let's have a conversation, see if there's a part. Great. Then move to the next part. Segment five. Hey, you know, why don't we have dinner? I'm going to be in New York. You know, and, and he'd have tons of these things going on at the same time. So he'd juggle all of that. I mean, one of the women in the film, Melissa Sage Miller, an actress who meets – an American who meets uh, Harvey at the Four Seasons in Toronto, you know, in, in, in the 90s mm-hmm. uh, while she's shooting a, you know, a teeny a – teen, a teen bopper type film yeah. – and he basically uh, is so aggressive. Nothing particularly happens in the hotel room that's of a nature of rape. However, he will not let her leave the room until she kisses him. And then when she's at the airport flying back to Los Angeles, he sends her a note and says, why don't you come on to my plane? I'll give you a lift back. I think to New York actually. She says, no, I'm okay. And then she, he, she gets a call from Harvey's assistant saying, hey, listen, uh, we've, your luggage has been moved to Harvey's private plane. And uh, he's waiting for you. She went. She went. But how, who does he know from from the airline yep. or aviation to get in and remove luggage? Isn't that a a federal offense? You know. Uh, and suddenly she's on you know the plane with him, and and uh, and he basically says to her, and it's in the film. I always get what I want. Yeah. And again, it shows you the power that he was able to to throw around. I mean, anyone who was in his presence for a moment understood who, you know, kind of was the loudest guy in the room. And I only met him a handful of times and always uh, casually uh, once uh, at a screening in New York, I was down, I was in New York watching a film that they had and he came out and made a speech beforehand. There's 10 of us in the room and he's like, we're family and we're with the Weinstein family and your family. We're all one family and everyone's a family and enjoy this movie that's all about family. He says the word family a hundred times and he's got a, a little gaggle of assistants with him. When he leaves, one of them says, enjoy the movie. And he says, no one's here to talk to you or no one wants to hear you speak yeah. or something like that. And that was him. Yeah, I, I, he, there was a, a – I mean this paradox of one side of him and which is in my first film of that he you know, had such brilliant taste in shaping a film. Cut 20 minutes out of yeah. Cinema Paradiso, make it brilliant. Take Il Posto and shape this. I mean a genius, you know, uh, uh, Harvey Scissorhands. He knew how to edit yeah, yeah. and do that. And then the other side of him was, was you know, really a monster – sort of physically gross person. Uh, I met him for the first time at the Cannes Film Festival at Hotel de Cap in, in the south of France and there's got this magnificent 
seafood buffet and there's Leo DiCaprio and there's Scorsese. $3,000 a night for a room, that That's kind of it. thing, yeah. And he yeah. walks out from the buffet with his table of food and there's a shrimp <laughs> on his on his lapel. And I thought it was like a brooch. I was like, that's unusual. It's a little shrimp, you know, and it's like, but it's just this, you know. That's just him. Gross. <laughs> wow. So do you, what do you think is going to happen here in the trial? Is he finished for good? Is he going to go to jail? I wrote an article for Variety about a month ago on this, you know, whether I not whether I thought he would go to jail or not. And and I I, I sadly I keep changing my opinion mm-hmm. on this. I when I wrote the piece a month ago, I said no because he he successfully won a court order to get the server back from the Weinstein company of his emails and in that server allegedly there's emails that uh, from from the alleged victims that suggests that they were in contact with him after uh, the alleged incidents. Right. Uh, now that's not a get out of jail card, uh, uh, a get out of jail free card at all on that end of it. But he is now and his lawyers, his lawyer Benjamin Brampton, are now raising this big red flag and saying, "Hello, the women kept in touch." It's to me the Gameshi defense right. on that end of it, uh, and and so I figured, well, you know, these these. Alleged victims are going to go on the stand. They're going to be destroyed by this Bramfman guy, uh, and he'll never see a day in jail. Fast forward to Bill Cosby, uh, and you know where there is a history, a huge history, mm-hmm. decades of of physical abuse, drugging women, and off he went, and rightfully so. I shed no tear for no, for Bill sitting there. So maybe maybe Harvey will go. It's going to be on the you know the credibility of of these witnesses. Um, he should go. Uh, I do worry. I mean, he's a very he's got a very skilled defense team. They're working at it. They're putting together you know what what will be a you know I think a horribly shredding uh, cross examination of of these alleged victims. And so uh, I I don't know yet, but my inkling tells me he'll skate. The big question is, will he ever produce again? Mm-hmm. Most likely, uh, but I, he'll never be Harvey Weinstein again. No, that, that's the thing. I mean, I've often said about Louis C.K., and, and he is, I mean, popping up here and there. He sh- you know, shows up at the Comedy Cellar every now and again, doing these impromptu sets. And I always said that I don't think Louis C.K. will disappear completely, and all of a sudden he's back albeit in a limited way. He'll never play Madison Square Garden again, but I think these guys are, are so pushed to produce, you know, to come up with something, to create something. They're, they're creative that, people. But yeah, they're, and, but I don't think that really they understand the, 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 the I mean, Louis C.K. is an extraordinarily smart guy. I've interviewed this guy. I've spent some time with him. He's a smart dude. That he doesn't understand that what he needs to do is atone more than just disappearing for six or seven months. He needs to talk about it. He's smart enough to be able to put what he did in some kind of, of perspective in terms of, of his behavior and and uh, hashtag me too and everything. He's smart enough to do it and he's not doing he's it. He's not doing it. I don't understand. And I don't understand it. I don't understand it either. I mean, you know, you go back to uh, um, uh, Hugh Grant mm-hmm. and, you know, when he had his issue with with uh, on Sunset Boulevard, yeah, and and Jay Leno's first question to him was, "What the hell were you thinking?" Exactly. Yeah, but it was a different time. Yeah, he was beloved. Uh, he did the mea culpa. Yeah, it wasn't a rape. Uh, it wasn't a sexual assault. 
it, it, it was what it was. Yeah. Uh, and adultery but, with a prostitute. Is well, what it was. that's yeah. it. And and uh, he he there was a better way of handling it. Mm-hmm. Nobody here has handled this properly. I mean, Louis C.K. did come out and say, you know, I I I admit what I did was wrong, but you know, they, their timing is off. You know, if you read the Jean Gameshi essay, yep. of which I did, and it's been four years, and you know, and, and you can't fault him for putting his toe in the water and testing to see what you know what what the what the interest level in him is. But you know, I think somebody said tone deaf. Yep. It is tone deaf. It, it is it, it, completely delusional writing. And and, you, and and again, you know, there's a, there's a scene in in uh, in the Reckoning where Harvey meets this Fox broadcaster. Uh, masturbates in front of her uh, into a plant, yeah. which I don't quite understand. I'm not a horticulturalist, but mm. I don't quite understand that. However, he does that in front of her and then and then calls her the next day and says, hey, I just want to let you know I had a really good time. Yeah. What? Yeah, exactly. That, there, there's a level of, of not understanding what has happened that seems to run through all of these. Mario Batali's long, you know, written apology. Well, not long, maybe four or five paragraphs. And then at the bottom of it, there's a recipe for cinnamon rolls. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it was really, truly. They don't get it. They don't get it. Yeah. And we'll talk about why they don't get it when we come back. I'm speaking with Barry Abrich. His film is called The Reckoning, Hollywood's Worst Kept Secret. It'll be on VOD, so iTunes, all that stuff. Anywhere you can legally stream films, you'll be able to find it as of November 6th. Uh, You can watch it on CBC on November 20th. When we come back, more about The Reckoning, Hollywood's worst kept secret. Barry Averich is my guest. He's directed uh, about 2 million films. As far as I can tell. It's three million. It's three million films. Why don't you have that right? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But uh, all sorts of things. I mean, uh, you know, there was the the Mogul series of films, movies about documentaries about people like Lou Wasserman and Harvey Weinstein, people like that. Uh, But also another interesting thing that you're doing, and we'll get back to the reckoning in just a sec, but uh, you've been uh, transcribing. Now, what's the word? You've been, been directing the stage the film versions of the stage shows at Stratford. Yes. And I love what you're doing there in that you're going to take all 33 of Shakespeare's major works and create the the catalog. Right. We're about halfway through. Yeah. So last night uh, in Stratford, uh, I produced and directed uh, Robert Lepage's stage production, film adaptation of a stage production of Coriolanus which he stages as a film, and and uh, it is just stunning. It'll be out in the spring, just stunning. Yeah, these movies are beautiful, and and I do love that there is a there will now be the definitive archive of all the work. It has you have yeah. to do it. These performances of Stephen Wimet, Colin Fiore, Christopher yeah. Plummer, Lucy Peacock, Shauna McKenna, great great Canadian actors. That once the play is over, you'll never see them again. Yeah. You know, in this piece. So they, they are being captured. And that's Anthony Cimolino at Stratford, who's their artistic director, who said this, this must be done. We're talking about The Reckoning, Hollywood's Worst Kept Secret. Uh, it's a film that uh, started off uh, talking about Harvey Weinstein. It branches off into other stories. And Dylan Farrow is in here. Now, mm. Dylan Farrow is the woman who was uh, Mia Farrow's adopted child who claims that Woody Allen abused her when she was a, a young child. Now, there's some debate in the family about whether this happened or not. Uh, you interviewed her. What's your take? Well, look, this was such a toxic divorce between Woody and, and, and Mia. Uh, incredibly toxic. Uh, 
And so there is question as to whether or not Mia Farrow brainwashed Dylan uh, Farrow, uh, you know, what what the ulterior motives were and whatnot. And I I was skeptical in that because, you know, you read it all. I'm not a psychologist, uh, although I am a firm believer that nobody should be faulted for coming out later Mm -hmm. with with allegations. That's how the mind works and that's how, you know, uh, uh, repressed memory works on that end of it. However, uh, somebody suggested Dylan. Uh, we had a, uh, a close to three-hour phone conversation, uh, and I found her extraordinarily powerful and convincing, and I felt she should be a voice, whether it is something that's in her mind, whether it's true, whether it's not, she's a voice, and this is what she saw, this is what she remembers, and I, I had to have her in the film, and she, it was the first on-camera interview she'd ever done, she was poised. She was extraordinary. And I said to her in the film, isn't the issue with your story that there's not been another victim to come forward? Mm-hmm. And she looks right into the camera and she says, he's married to her. Right. Great line. So I, I do believe her. And it's interesting because Ronan, who is her brother, Ronan Farrow, uh, believes her. Moses Farrow, who is her another brother, because there's nine or ten kids, uh, doesn't believe her. And so this is a, a he said, she said that may never actually get solved. If you weren't in the attic and you didn't see it, then, yeah. you know, you could either believe or, you know, or take any other side you want. I did feel her anxiety. I mean, she talks about, you know, Woody being honored at, at the AFI mm-hmm. uh, and when he'd show up at the Oscars of the, the panic and anxiety attacks that she's had. Uh, I mean, you know, again, I'm not a forensic investigator or, or a psychologist, God help me, but I, I, you know, you look at the body of work. I read the, you know, those, uh, his psychiatric reports that were released and, you know, the man, there's, there's definitely, he has obsessions. Mm-hmm. Whether he abused her or not, I don't know, uh, but I, you know, I think she was a very important voice. So who else is in the film? We, we, I, I like that we talked uh, earlier, we talked about that there are actors who's, who we don't necessarily know, but how did you find people? How did you do the research to get them? I worked with a, uh, a producer, uh, an actor named Melissa Hood, Toronto, uh, um, born in Toronto, lives in Los Angeles. I felt it was important that this film be shaped by a woman, yeah. uh, and it wasn't merely my perspective, and and uh, and she was present during all of the interviews and did some of the interviewing with me as well, and very very uh, insightful producer. I mean, fantastic work with me on another project. That's where I got to know her. So we started to put the word out through agents, through other actors, and and suddenly people were coming forward. Uh, that, again, not famous people, but were whistleblowers. And we did pre-interviews with them, and, and I love their stories. I didn't feel that having Salma Hayek or Gwyneth Paltrow again in my film just for commercial purposes saying the same thing that they've said, uh, you know, and and I had some issues with – I don't slam them for taking so long to come out. Nobody should do that. But they had less to lose than some of these people who will never have careers again that he extinguished. Uh, so I didn't see any sort of real need. They're, they're in my film. You see interviews with Ashley Judd, you know, and you see clips of Rose McGowan. But, you know, I felt that I really needed some untold stories to be heard. I've always been told from my very first job in broadcasting, people want to hear about people. And it doesn't really matter 
whether they're famous or not. It, if the, you've got a compelling story, people want to hear it. Their storytelling is there. And, you know, we tell the Bill O'Reilly story. And there was a great moment when we had our, our film premiere at Hot Docs where they talk about you know, the Bill O'Reilly show and these women coming forward. And then within 24 hours, 30 sponsors mm-hmm. drop their uh, their um, support of the Bill O'Reilly show. And there's, and there's massive applause in the theater that broke out. And it was, and it was so great. But, I, you know, I think storytelling... Uh, is always paramount in documentaries if it's the right time. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm fascinated with, it's another tangent here, but I'm fascinated with the failure of, of Michael Moore's new film, yeah. Eleven Nine, where I just felt, you know, he, he, he and he's a good storyteller. He doesn't manipulate the truth, but everything that in that film is available on CNN well, here's the for thing free. About, yeah, I, I think that a lot of movies like that, and, and, and Eleven Nine, his film is an example of this, is people think they know that story. And so if you want to pay your 15 bucks to go see it in the theater, it's because you're a Michael Moore fan. And frankly, I think there's fewer of them than there were 10 years ago. He hasn't made a movie in a long time. And and his time as a as a rabble rouser has kind of come and gone a little bit. Well, he hasn't made a good film. He hasn't made a good film. You know, I, I, I think there's just too much of it. And it happens. You lose your, I mean, we're all as filmmakers, yeah. you always worry about losing your edge and your hunger. You become... You, you you do a little better in your life and whatnot, and you, yep. you're willing, to, you're you're less willing to take certain risks. One of my first documentaries, I went into the most horrible village in Serbia. Right. You know, would I do that today? I would, because I'm still curious. Yeah. Uh, on that end of it, so I I just think he went back to revisit uh, old material, and and it didn't work. No, it didn't work at all. Um, and and the film's okay. Because he presents structurally things. fine, yeah, and he and and he's entertaining in the way. I mean, he's kind of a genius at putting together montages using archival footage and print, and he's got that sardonic kind of yeah. uh, vo that he uses and that kind of thing. But I'm not even sure that I entirely call what he does documentary. I mean, it's it's kind of a a, a hybrid of opinion, news, and some and filmmaking. It's and a scrapbook. Else. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we mentioned Gomeshi earlier uh, in the in the interview. Uh, Marie Hennon's in the film, uh, who was his his lawyer. Uh, tell me about the choice to include her. Well, a little divisive. I mean, every sort of Q and A, you know, half the audience says, "Hey, how fabulous! She has a voice, uh, and 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 she's a woman, and she says very important things that need to be heard." The other half of the audience go, "How could you include her? Right. She got Gomeshi off." Well, Gomeshi. Whether you're a fan or you're not is entitled in this world that we live in to a defense uh, and she gave him you know, the defense that he paid for and she won. So be it. It doesn't mean that she necessarily supports his views and, and his, his uh, actions at all in terms of uh, uh, what, he, what he did. Uh, I, I think he ultimately was convicted in, in the court of public opinion as was OJ on that end. But Marie Hennon, I felt not only she representing a Jane Doe in the Harvey Weinstein case, so she's a player. Yep. I think she looks at the legal system. She looks at what can change and won't and, and will not change and becomes a cogent voice in the film. I, I, I felt she was vitally important because she's been on both sides of it. I'm speaking with Barry Average. The film is called The Reckoning, Hollywood's Worst Kept Secret. We just have a couple of minutes left. How has this changed Hollywood? I know that just in my own limited way of being around film festivals, and I've been on a couple of film sets probably in the last year, that sort of thing, that it does feel like it's a little different. 
you know, people are shaking hands rather than giving the big hug. Now, people are not having meetings in hotel rooms as much. People are, which was common. I mean, when a lot of these allegations first came out, people were saying, what are you doing having meetings in hotel rooms? Well, that's kind of the way it worked when you're at a film festival. Well, here's what's changing and here's what's not changing fast enough. I mean, there's no question you're right. The workplace is changing. People are thinking twice. There's clauses in contracts about inclusion, uh, gender parity, yeah. uh, and doing, gender pay. And doing, news, and doing nude scenes and that kind of thing. Well, exactly. And so, so I think that's all changing. What's not changing fast enough is the hiring of women in creative roles. Why can't the average public name three female directors. Yeah. They can. And why wouldn't you hire a female director? It's outrageous or producer. So that's got to change. Do you think that the changes that have happened in this last year, where it's been, there's been such a spotlight on hashtag me too, do you think they'll stick? Or in two, three years from now, do you think, oh, it'll, it'll just sort of go back to status quo the way it was? No, I don't think it'll ever go back. Uh, I think the public does get board, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and, and there's less shock value. However, there's going to be, you know, continuing outings based on people's various yep. power centers. Les Moonves, very powerful guy. A lot of people didn't like him. Goodbye, Les. Yeah. There, a lot more of those to come. I've been speaking with Barry Averidge. The film is called The Reckoning, Hollywood's Worst Kept Secret. You can see it on the CBC on November 20th or check it out at your leisure on VOD, Video On Demand, starting on November 6th. Film, The Reckoning, Hollywood's Worst Kept Secret. Barry, thanks so much for this. Anytime, Richard. Thanks to you for listening and thanks to Andre on the board. We'll talk again next week.